said, let me just place the region of interest somewhere else, a little bit off to the side, and let's see if I can get the fibers that I want. And I did that, and then I looked at the results, I was like, oh, that looks like the trigeminal nerve. And sure enough, the whole field of diffusion tensor imaging in trigeminal neuralgia really developed out of that. So then these two circles just fed each other. The more patients I looked after, the more I became involved in research in trigeminal neuralgia, in imaging of trigeminal neuralgia. And that now has really overtaken a, a sizable ch chunk of my practice. And as of a year ago, I completed a thousand procedures for Water Jamal Raja. Welcome to Stimulating Brains. Stimulating Brains, episode number eight already. This episode is special because it is a guest episode hosted by Luca Milosevic in Toronto. Luca is an assistant professor at the University of Toronto Institute of Biomedical Engineering, has done stellar work on neural recordings in the basal ganglia within the context of deep brain simulation surgery over the last few years. And Luca has just moved back to Toronto from Tübingen in Germany to found his own lab. And I'm sure he's going to put out stellar work there. And today Luca is interviewing Professor Mochgen Hodai, who is a worldwide expert on brain stimulation for neuropathic pain. Luca will formally introduce Dr. Hodai more properly in the following, but I'm really excited about this episode, talking about neuropathic pain the application of diffusion tensor imaging-based tractography to treat trigeminal neuralgia, connectivity-aided targeting, neuromodulation for pain in general, and then the very exciting cases that um, they talk about. Dr. Hodai has also been involved a lot in teaching, including a worldwide-spanning neuron project that you can find under neuronproject.org, which is a Moodle-based teaching program, and I think a wonderful initiative to spread teaching in the field of neurosurgery across the globe. So I'm sure you're going to have fun listening to this exciting conversation between Drs. Milosevic and Hodai. my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Mochgan Hadai. Uh, Dr. Hadai is a staff neurosurgeon at the Toronto Western Hospital with uh, subspecialty training in stereotactic functional neurosurgery. She's the surgical co-director of the Gamma Knife Center at the Toronto Western Hospital uh, and she has expertise in all forms of neuromodulation including deep brain stimulation, spinal cord stimulation, back with pumps uh, and I'm sure I'm missing some other indications. Um, her primary research focus these days is on structural MRI imaging and functional neurosurgery with a special focus on neuropathic pain. Uh, Dr. Hadai is also a full professor in the Department of Surgery at the University of Toronto uh, and has contributed immensely to teaching neurosurgery and neuroanatomy, not only here in Toronto, but on a global scale. Uh, Dr. Hadai, I've had the privilege of working with you in your DBS surgical theaters over the years, um, and I can easily say that you're responsible for at least 80% of what I know about human neuroanatomy uh, from my days as a student in your class. Um, but I've also come to realize that the ways that our, our lives have overlapped over the years is probably just a small fraction of what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, so I'm very much looking forward to learning more about you and 
your your accomplished career. Luca, it's a pleasure to to speak with you, and um, uh, I think it's a great opportunity for us to just sit down and have a chat. Yep. So, Dr. Dai, can you walk myself uh, and some of the listeners of this podcast through as as much as you feel comfortable sharing, uh, basically? some notable life events that led you to the moment where you first thought to yourself, I want to become a neurosurgeon. Uh, sure. Uh, Luca, I have to start by saying that this is probably one of the toughest questions that I, that I get asked, and I have never found a very good answer for it. And I suppose that's probably because, uh, you know, the way we make decisions is based on so many factors and, uh, you know, there's fluidity to it. So, Sometimes I think one factor is more important than another. But regardless, I mean, I, I, was, uh, I was born in Iran, and um, I left uh, that country as a, a child. I grew up in Spain. And, um, you know, there's not really too many doctors in my family, just my, one of my sisters and myself. Uh, and this was not a path that I envisioned for myself as a child, as a young adult, uh, I was always attracted to science, there was no doubt of that, uh, and I was attracted to medicine as well. Um, and one of my great passions has always been organic chemistry, of all things. A life in neurosurgery was not really what I had thought of. I mean, you know, we can go and analyze that, and uh, perhaps some of it is the opportunities that were available, particularly to women. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, uh, what really drew me to that field was my father, because he had hemifacial spasm. So upon uh, searching for solutions uh, for him, I met who, was, who ended up being uh, eventually my father's neurosurgeon, even though he actually never elected to have surgery for it. And then I became connected uh, with uh, Dr. Andrew Talala, who was uh, a neurosurgeon that we saw, and was, he was an amazing man, and he truly became my mentor. Mm-hmm. At the time, I had uh, uh, already started some interest uh, in neuroscience, and then just that rose exponentially. And I had the opportunity to attend uh, clinics and really become immersed in the life of uh, um, of a neurosurgeon, Dr. Tall at the time was effectively retiring, so he had cut down his surgeries and so on. And he really was, I think, that the opportunity of him uh, being um, uh, involved in a different type of teaching of someone who I wasn't even in medical school at the time uh, was something that was appealing to him, and he was an amazing teacher. So I think that totally revamped my life. And as I went into medical school, you know, as much as I truly enjoyed medical school, every aspect of it, uh, there was something very special about the brain, about the neurosciences, about neurosurgery. So that's really, I think, uh, you know, a, a major, major factor, even though not the, the only one. Mm-hmm. I think altogether, you know, the life of neurosurgery with respect to the, the intensity of it, the um, aspects of uh, how much we are we are able to intervene and change someone who effectively everybody else almost gives up on mm-hmm. and we bring them back to health. Um, and the fact that we take a very complex problem and we dissect it into smaller, simpler bits and connect all the dots to come up with a solution, I found those incredibly interesting. Mm-hmm. Where, so where did you meet uh, Dr. Talala? Was that in Spain or...? 
No, no, he was, uh, we were living at the time uh, just outside of Toronto, about an hour and a bit. And that's all I was working at McMaster, where, where I was as well for my undergraduate. So that's where I, I met him. And uh, he's now passed away. Uh, but I remained connected with him really until the, the very end. So he's been a huge influence in uh, my career and his picture is up on my wall. So. He's, uh, yeah. Of course, he's not the only mentor that, that I've had. Uh, it started there. Uh, and uh, I think as much as education is important, I think uh, the role of mentors is also very crucial. And how they allow you not so much to learn differently, but shape your learning. And um, how they allow you to you know, drive that sense of curiosity that every learner has the way you think about problems, the way you deal with problems when, you know, you're not having a, a good day or something doesn't make sense, um, and uh, the way you structure your, your thought as you approach your career and your patience and so on is, is I find that incredibly important. Mm -hmm. um, so, I guess once this seed was planted in your, in your mind that this is something you wanted to do as a career, and um, where did you go from there? I think you mentioned that you did your undergraduate studies at McMaster University, which is in Hamilton. It's about a 45-minute drive outside of Toronto. Um, what led you from the moment where you knew this is what you wanted to do mm -hmm. to the position that you have here in Toronto today? Yeah, so I did my medical school at uh, Queen's, which is about two hours away, and uh, I have, uh, uh, then I came to Toronto for my residency training. Mm -hmm. um, residency training in neurosurgery, uh, particularly in Toronto, uh, particularly the time that I did it, although it continues, it's fairly rigorous, mm -hmm. and um Obviously, you know, you have to get accustomed but, uh, uh, in looking after patients that have all sorts of disorders. So, um, there, there's, I, I generally say that there's quite a lot of um, persistence required. Persistence to get into neurosurgery and persistence to remind yourself that, you know, you should, you should stay in neurosurgery. Mm -hmm. Because it, it can get pretty uh, hairy and, uh, and intense. Nonetheless, this is what we do, and this is what we love to do day in, day out. Mm -hmm. um, so from there, obviously, you know, the years of, of uh, nurse, uh, general training of neurosurgery were there. And then in, in uh, the middle of that, I took some, some time to do uh, research in functional neurosurgery. And I did that with Andres Lozano, uh, working on deep brain simulation for epilepsy. Okay. And... Uh, this After, is before your fellowship here. This is before my yeah. fellowship. So I did an infolded, essentially, research fellowship within my, my residency. And then at the end of my fellowship, I did uh, six months of um, uh, surgical fellowship in functional uh, neurosurgery here. I also should say that I did my residency at a key time, and that was the very, very end of Dr. Tasker's clinical um, uh, and surgical time. So... I had a very short but very valuable window of uh, working with him. And I have to say, I clearly remember when, I believe it was the year 2000, when we had one of our professorships and Dr. Tasker was, uh, even though he was from Toronto, he was our visiting professor, in honor of him essentially leaving his, uh, his uh, surgical practice. And as you know, he had 
done a tremendous amount of advances in our understanding of the thalamus and working with, uh, with chronic pain patients. And he's published one of the most singular books uh, that I have a copy of in my library uh, called The Thalamus and Midbrain of Man, where uh, there is over 5,000 recordings of the human thalamus and findings in the motor and sensory uh, parts of the thalamus and so on. And the question that I had for, for Ron Tasper is, when did he feel that we would come to an objective understanding of pain? Uh, and as he was answering that question, um, somehow my uh, between his question and my mind, things uh, sort of flew off. And that, that level of curiosity, I think, has still stayed with me. And I, it has shaped quite a lot of my research, uh, uh, research career. I must note as well the great influence of Jonathan Dostrovsky, uh, who uh, is... Um, essentially the father of, our, of the physiology that, that we do here, and of course Karen Davis. So all of these are key figures that um, shaped uh, the later part of my uh, clinical and research training as well as uh, my research career. Mm, that's, that's excellent. So this is, you're probably a very excellent resource to, to ask about sort of uh, the, the history of surgery type of functional nerve surgery in Toronto. Uh, I think Many of the people who have been on Andy's podcast have been from Europe, um, but I think everybody knows in some way or another that Toronto is a very special place and have, holds a very special place in history in surgical functional neurosurgery. Um, so you just mentioned some of the key figures, uh, Dr. Tasker, uh, Dostrovsky, um, Karen Davis, um, of course, Dr. Lozano. Uh, do you want to expand a little bit about sort of give people a background about the history, the rich history that we have here? and at what point in that timeline did you did you acquire your staff position, and sort of what was the state of the art at the at the time of you acquiring a position? Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, functional, the formal aspect of uh, surgical and functional neurosurgery really starts with Ron Tasker here in Toronto, and I should say that Toronto is the oldest neurosurgical program in uh, the country, dating back to 1923. So uh, when Ron Tasker uh, started as a staff neurosurgeon and took on these, these very challenging cases that really other neurosurgeons did not uh, uh, look after, he really took it on with a perfectly um, matched hat of surgeon and scientist. So every case was um, also a research opportunity for him. And that is a legacy that we've continued as well as you know. Um, I remember when I was in my first year of residency and I walked into the OR, uh, I frankly can't remember what Casey was doing. Uh, I know that uh, Andres Lozano was there as well. And what, um, uh, you know, I, I really did feel that I was living part of history. And I should say that as a medical student, I did an elective um, elsewhere outside of uh, Toronto. And the functional neurosurgeon there uh, was doing a, a procedure um, approaching the thalamus, and he called for the tasker kit. So when he did that, <laughs> I realized, I see. So now I know where this is, you know, where this is coming from. Yeah. So the guy that actually put that kit together is, you know, in Toronto. So that was very meaningful to me. Obviously, it, it spoke of the impact that that tasker had in many other institutions as well. When uh, you know, they use his kit to, to perform the procedures. What, what would be in that kit? 
So uh, typically a uh, lesioning electrode, uh, a two millimeter tip lesioning electrode, uh-huh. and you know all the bells and whistles that that go with it. But that was at the the task we get. Yeah. Um, it's uh, maybe on the sideways uh, thing to say that um, I have been very impressed by how much serendipity influences one's life. Mm-hmm. And as much as, uh, you know, people used to tell me that in terms of research and so on, that serendipity has so much, it's like, yeah, I wouldn't believe that. I'm like, yeah, sure. I mean, but now that I look at my, my own life, I realize so much of what has happened to me has happened in a serendipitous manner. And uh, it's really valuable for us to sort of keep, uh, at least I try to keep my eyes open because serendipity just means, you know, that you observe things at the right time, frankly. Yeah. And as, ha- as it happens, in fact, um, one of the, uh, um, the uh, interesting uh, things in the field of functional neurosurgery uh, were the developments uh, by um, Cooper, mm-hmm. Irving Cooper, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, uh, neurosurgeon from New York who developed the uh, sort of cryophalomotomies. Um, and uh, Dr. Talala was actually very interested in those procedures, and he performed quite a few functional procedures. Somehow, I've been able to, you know, circle myself around uh, this uh, this field, and um, uh, eventually, I guess, meet myself at the very beginning again. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the influence of Ron Tasker and, of course, Andres Lozano, who came um, as Tasker was wrapping up, and uh, Johnson Dostrovsky, Bill Hutchinson, Karen Davis, and this key collection of individuals who are each thinkers and scientists and um, really go well beyond the uh, you know isolated transactional approach of a patient has a problem, I'm going to do this to fix them, to thinking, why does a patient have a problem? And how can I understand this so that I can treat the patient better, I can um, uh, understand the brain better, I can understand the circuitry and uh, the connections in a, in a different light. And that has been such a huge motivating force for all of us working here in, in this field. And uh, in terms of uh, you know where we started. There's a there's a fantastic paper published by Ron Tasker, uh, in which he says, in which he describes his the many decades that he spent doing this work and what the lay of the land has been and what he developed. But from then till now, there has there have been so many advances uh, in uh, uh, treatment of this uh, of disease, neuromodulation, looking at many different targets. Uh, understanding of the brain circuitry, um, developments in the uh, hardware that we use for neuromodulation, and then many other things. So, for instance, when I was doing my fellowship, effectively, um, we were primarily doing deep brain stimulation, very few other procedures. Mm-hmm. Now, when I fellow, our fellows come, they really have the depth and breadth of functional neurosurgery at their hands. So the heavy amount of neuromodulation of all kinds, brain, spinal cord, peripheral field stimulation, and so on. Uh, a huge practice in trigeminal neuralgia that I've developed, mm-hmm. gamma knife radio surgery, focused ultrasound, uh, laser, laser interstitial therapy. Uh, and this doesn't even approach the many aspects that we have for either resection or stimulation of patients with, with epilepsy. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, the field is very, very broad, and uh, I think all functional neurosurgeons recognize that the field doesn't, is not defined by neuromodulation alone. It's uh, much bigger than that. And we have to do it justice, obviously, because it's, it's a pervasive problem within our society, whether you look at pain, at uh, movement disorders, at psychiatric surgery, and uh, we need to uh, come up with good approaches to help our patients. Yeah, of course. Um, so, in terms of your own sort of career trajectory, when you came in here for your fellowship, you mentioned it was heavy on the DBS side, probably lots of movement disorder cases. Uh, you mentioned the epilepsy cases that were being done at the time. How do you, do you want to just chat a little bit about sort of how maybe the rise and fall of certain indications in DBS? What was sort of the state of the art at the time, specifically related to DBS? I know you're mm -hmm. you have a subspecialty, of course, in neuropathic pain, and we'll certainly talk about that. But just in terms of DBS, I know there was a lot of cases for pain here. Um, there was epilepsy cases, and where are we today? And sort of what what's been the evolution in these sort of uh, indications that aren't as as conventional these days? Yeah, so some conventional indications have remained. For instance, uh, the specific indications of uh, GPI, DBS, or even thalamic DBS for essential tremor, for instance. But uh, as experience has increased in some other areas, we have seen a rise and fall in certain things. Certainly, there's been uh, the uh, initial rise of STN DBS that has definitely persisted. Mm -hmm. um, other uh, targets, for instance, uh, uh, the pedunculopontine nucleus has uh, sort of frizzled a yeah. little bit. Um, huge interest initially in motor cortex simulation that although perhaps it remains in some parts of the world, and I know it's not DBS, but still part of the conversation, I suppose, although it remains in some parts of the world, I have been really not very impressed with the results we have, chiefly because I think we do not have the correct hardware to stimulate the motor cortex. We use, you know, electrodes that are meant for the spinal cord, and, and mm -hmm. we think that putting it on the motor cortex would work the same way. I don't think it does. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yes, pain is, uh, is a big uh, field. The more procedures we have done uh, in the field of uh, deep brain simulation for pain, the more we've realized that its long-term outcome is tenuous at best mm -hmm. and quite unpredictable. So, again, we need to understand the um, science of it a lot better before we are able to, to offer solutions for, uh, you know, predictable solutions at least that, mm -hmm. that we can rely on and uh, uh, give good prognosis to patients. Yeah. Um, you were mentioning to me earlier that... Um, you're doing more and more and more trigeminal neurology cases. When did when did that begin? Um, you know, there's I'm privy to your operating schedule, so I know that you do <laughs> muscular uh, microvascular decompression surgeries, gamma knife, radiofrequency rhizotomy. Uh, when did what's the timeline of all these different uh, therapies? How do you match a particular therapy with a particular patient? How how do you make that? What's the decision process here? Um, in terms of one trigeminal neurology patient, then there's a plethora of, of techniques you can yeah. you can use to treat them. So when I first started as staff uh, in at the Toronto Western in 2004, 
Um, obviously, uh, my subspecialty has been from the get-go in the field of functional neurosurgery, and um, there were perhaps a few referrals of patients that had trigeminal neuralgia. Uh, in 2005, so very shortly thereafter, we started with our Gamma Knife program, mm. which attracted, of course, an, uh, a, uh, a good number of patients with trigeminal neuralgia for treatment. Uh, so out of uh, the interest in uh, that field um, and to um, uh, be able to help as many patients as possible, I, I was uh, and I became involved in, uh, in gamma knife radio surgery and then slowly the patients uh, grew. Uh, I should say that around that time, uh, I became very interested in exploring uh, the imaging, advanced imaging techniques such as diffusion tensor imaging. My initial goal was to study the fibers of the brainstem as they would uh, uh, help us with better targeting in deep brain simulation. Uh, and I'll go back to serendipity again because uh, I was actually preparing a talk and uh, I was trying to figure out, you know, how can I just find a nice view of these crossing fibers and explore those with DTI for this talk. And I tried and I tried and it just was, wasn't coming to me. And I said, you know, maybe it's a technical issue with this specific software uh, drawing these, uh, uh, you know, taking DTI information. And I said, let me just place the region of interest somewhere else, a little bit off to the side, and let's see if I can get the fibers that I want. And I did that. And then I looked at the results like, oh, that looks like the trigeminal nerve. And sure enough, the whole field of diffusion tensor imaging in trigeminal neuralgia really developed out of that. So then these two circles just fed each other. The more patients I looked after, the more I became involved in research in trigeminal neuralgia, in imaging of trigeminal neuralgia. And that now has um, really overtaken a, a sizable chunk of my practice. And as of December of 2019, so a year ago, I completed a thousand procedures for water gemon Raja with, uh, you know, very um, uh, large and also very interesting research uh, in in this area. So again, sometimes things just happen. You have to be ready for for the opportunity and be curious enough to uh, to pursue those. Uh, uh, those leads that life, give, uh, life gives you. Mm -hmm. So how do you, going back to the question of various techniques that you have to offer, how do you decide which patient gets which mm -hmm. uh, type of procedure? Yeah, so we rely on, uh, obviously, the type of symptoms that they present, uh, their age and medical uh, status, and whether they've had prior procedures before. If they are reasonably healthy and they have not had a prior procedure before, Microvascular decompression still remains the uh, best treatment that we have to offer based on the likelihood of them being pain-free after the procedure. Mm -hmm. Having said that, there's a sizable number of uh, patients who are uh, younger, they're quite healthy, but they also have busy lives. They might have uh, young children, their own business, etc., and they don't really uh, care for the downtime of a surgical procedure, and therefore... In those patients, gamma-night radio surgery is becoming a very popular route as well. So I would say that these two procedures, microvascular decompression and gamma-night, mm -hmm. are fairly high up in uh, both numbers and, uh, uh, you know, options that patients seek. 
Uh, I typically use uh, rhizotomies, whether they're radiofrequency or glycerol or whatever type, as uh, second-line procedures. Mm -hmm. uh, they tend to be more injurious to the nerve, and I always have a hesitation of possibly them resulting in uh, the affrontation-type pain. Mm -hmm. um, also, patients are not quite so keen having dense numbness of the face. So obviously, they can be avoided. That's, that's preferable. So I keep those as uh, second line. And uh, then beyond that, I see a uh, sizable number of patients that have had multiple recurrences or they might have, for instance, multiple sclerosis, uh, which really takes them away from the, typically takes them away from the option of microvascular decompression. And uh, we explore a number of peripheral procedures in those patients. Um, a typical trigeminal neuralgia is not uncommon at all. And uh, again, in those patients, I really favor uh, the possibility of neuromodulation, particularly peripheral field simulation. Mm -hmm. uh, after having seen so many patients, um, we uh, recently actually were able to identify a very unique syndrome, um, a, uh, a syndrome that is um, depicted by a very unusual type of a single lesion within the pons, which is just within the brainstem fibers of the trigeminal nerve. Mm -hmm. This is important because these patients effectively, uh, they're non-responders to surgical treatment, conventional surgical treatment. And uh, by that I mean, you know, we see them oftentimes, they've had many, many procedures. Uh, they've either come to me or they've come referred to me from other neurosurgeons. And uh, routinely, these patients, they might have a good uh, response, but it lasts very short uh, duration of, of time, and then their pain comes back. So in those patients, I've been much more keen in moving to neuromodulation right away mm -hmm. um, and not put them through the risk of conventional surgery. Mm -hmm. what's, the, uh, what's the sort of long-term eff efficacy of the, of the neuromodulatory approach? Um, so it's a procedure that we've just started uh, a few years ago. I don't have a very uh, a la a long experience with, with these in terms of how they last. I do have a patient who's had, um, who had, this was my first patient that had a peripheral field simulator put in, I would say, nearly 10 years ago. She had very bad post-herpetic neuralgia. She wasn't completely uh, asensate in the face. She had some sensation, so therefore we tried this. Uh, and even though she still has some pain, the pain is at least manageable for her. Mm -hmm. uh, so that is the longest uh, uh, effect that I've had so far. Uh, but of course, we know that neuromodulation provides the advantage of uh, fine-tuning the simulator and um, allowing us to be versatile with uh, how we treat patients. So um, as, uh, uh, you know, patients... Uh, explore this journey of having a simulator and managing their face, we learn more and more, and we hope to also research this in a different area so that we have a better understanding of the networks that are involved and how we might uh, be able to, uh, uh, you know, before surgery, have some level of accurate prediction of mm -hmm. what the likelihood of response might be. Great. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned um, some sort of let's say, special indications um, for pain. Are there any particularly memorable individual cases that stick out to you, whether it be deep brain stimulation cases or trigeminology cases or maybe one of each um, that uh, stick out in your memory 
um, where perhaps you learned something from, from the procedure itself or from that patient. Um. Yeah, there's many, Luca. I think, uh, you know, we need to learn from every single uh, patient that we see, whether we operate on them or not. And uh, I think we are uniquely blessed in that way to have that opportunity to contact patients and uh, uh, understand what they're going through. So uh, memorable moments could refer to potentially, uh, you know, issues that pertain to the experience of the patient, and th there have been many, and also issues that pertain to the science that is related to, to that specific case. Um, there's no doubt there, uh, you know, the, the richness of thalamic surgery is incredible. Mm -hmm. uh, so particularly sensory thalamus, when we get... Uh, you know, right deep into VC as we do VIM surgery. And we see that, uh, you know, we, we detect uh, uh, cells that are uh, responsive to one type of uh, sensation and some, I mean, it's just fascinating. It's mm -hmm. such beautiful electrophysiology. Um, you know, the observation, something that we take in, you know, we might, we, we see enough of it, so potentially we get used to it, but to be able to arrest a patient's tremor mm -hmm. uh, and to appreciate the impact that this has on, on their life uh, is, is quite a sight to behold, and uh, we should not t take that for granted. Perhaps one of the most interesting cases I've done, and we published this a few years ago, was a patient that saw me for intractable hiccups. Okay. And she had been hiccuping continuously, uh, you know, several times a minute for the past time when she saw me, maybe upwards of four years. And she was totally at her, at her wit's end, understandably so. I mean, be, spending a bit of time with that patient in clinic was, uh, for us, exhausting because <laughs> we could appreciate the patient's discomfort. Yeah. So through a set of investigations, uh, which included uh, EMGs of her diaphragm bilaterally, as well as um, a block of her uh, vagus nerve mm -hmm. uh, under ultrasound in the operating room, which involved anesthesia, putting a needle in her carotid sheath in between the carotid artery and the uh, uh, jugular vein. We gave her a Horner syndrome for 48 hours and we got rid of her hiccups completely for those 48 hours. Wow. So knowing that this works, uh, we put in a left vagal nerve stimulator, uh -huh. which she's had for, I think she, we put it in 2009, so we're coming to almost 11 years. And uh, she is a ton better. She, she remains uh, well. Um, she still has hiccups, but to a much, much lower frequency. They're totally manageable. And uh, I get a call for her every few years when the battery needs replacing and then yeah. her hiccups are bad. Yeah. And then we go back all the way to square one. So, I mean, these are obviously very unique cases mm -hmm. um, which um, come once in a while. Uh, but honestly, I think um, it is uh, it's a matter of really trying to understand and appreciate uh, every bit of science and every bit of clinical interaction that we have with patients. It, it really is a blessing. Mm -hmm. Um, I appreciate that you, you mentioned uh, the important role of electrophysiology and serotactic functional surgery, of course, personally. Um, of course, your, your research work with DTI um, has also impacted upon how you, how you 
uh, perform your cases. So I think one sort of semi-controversial thing in the field nowadays is to do a sleep versus awake surgeries. Um, I know that you're partial to awake surgery because I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be in the OR. Um, but can you speak about sort of the, the, the implications of, of, of res how research impacts upon clinical practice, for example, and how, how you've personally seen things sort of come to fruition from, yeah, in, the, in that order, research-driven advancements to neurosurgical procedures? Well, in my view, um, the key advances in uh, science and medicine have been driven by research. I don't think anyone can argue that. Now, does that mean that everyone should do it that way? I think that that depends on, uh, you know, the site uh, and the individual and the conditions, uh, the clinical conditions that, that allow for such a thing. And if we all could do it, that would be wonderful. But I do acknowledge that this is not possible everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, having said that, uh, certainly the, those who have uh, a setup that allows for uh, research to be integrated in, in surgical practice, uh, we really need to take as much advantage of that as, as possible for, for the sake of, you know, the science and uh, all the information that will come out of it. I'll also acknowledge that time has allowed me to understand that things can be done well in different ways. Mm -hmm. And uh, therefore, uh, there have been instances in which, uh, by way of, I would say, our routine practice, we have done, or we've tried to do DBS in a patient that's awake and it really hasn't worked. The patient is uncomfortable, they're not cooperative. And, you know, in certain uh, cases, we have to take that into account mm -hmm. and uh, do the surgery while they're asleep. And the wealth of uh, the understanding and experience that we draw from uh, our field really helps us in those cases as well. In other places, things are done a bit differently. And this is an eternal conversation, awake versus asleep, electrophysiology versus no electrophysiology. And there's been heated debates about this, mm -hmm. some of which I have been uh, uh, moderating and uh, some of which in which I've been in the audience and some of which have been a little bit too controversial. <laughs> uh, nonetheless, honestly, I think things are, uh, you know, can be done well in different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, they just need to be studied and they need to be done uh, for the sake of the best uh, care for the patient yeah. and not just as a routine because that's the way we do things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to um, I want to touch on sort of your, your involvement in teaching, um, but before I go there, I just want to rewind all the way to almost the beginning of our conversation where you mentioned opportunities for women in neurosurgery and actually um, the way in which this interview between myself and you today sparked was because Andy tweeted about looking for, he mentioned that it was, why is it so difficult to find a female neurosurgeon to interview for this podcast? And he asked for recommendations. And of course, immediately I thought of you. Um, and you mentioned as well, opportunities available to women at the time in neurosurgery. Um, just, a very quick Google search. Um, I found a statistic that's frightening that Canada has approximately 333 practicing neurosurgeons, only 36 of which 
of whom are women. That's 11%, and of course you're, you're one of them here. Um, we know that the university, the chair of neurosurgery for the University of Toronto is a colleague of yours and mine, Gallery Zade. So that's, that's wonderful. But of course, you know, seeing these things on Twitter and whatnot is, does not reflect these statistics. So what, what are some of these challenges that prevent women from, from engaging in, in this career? How can we improve this, this rather scary number? Yeah, well, I could talk about this for a while. Um, we've persistently been uh, one of uh, the surgical specialties where representation of women is the lowest, mm -hmm. uh, if not the, the specialty where it is the lowest. So we've been writing about 10% for a very, very long time. Um, I think there are several aspects. It is uh, obviously... Uh, I'm not going to whitewash it. It's a very intense specialty. And um, in its intensity, both physically, emotionally, intellectually, in every aspect, I think um, a number of people, men and women, decide that, you know, maybe I'll do something that's a bit more life-friendly. Mm -hmm. I struggled with this for a very long time as to, you know, why is it that if, if anybody, myself or anyone else, wants to do neurosurgery, we have to go through so much? I don't know that I have a very good answer to it. Short of saying that, you know, the tool that we have to play with, which is the brain, comes with a responsibility and a consequence. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that we can, we can minimize that. I think with respect to women, though, I have to say when I was expressing my interest in neurosurgery and in, uh, in medical school. Uh, out of very good intentions, essentially everyone that I spoke with tried to change my mind. Okay. Um, at a rate of maybe a thousand to one. Mm -hmm. there, were only, there were only literally two, maybe two and a half people that said, you know, if you really want it, go for it. And that you know, they backed me up. One of them was, was of course, Dr. Tuala. One of them uh, was uh, a very dear uh, friend to me who's an ophthalmologist, Dr. David Smith, that I spoke with. And uh, they both encouraged me to, uh, to do this. And I chose to listen to the two of them. Mm -hmm. I could have listened to the other thousand. Nothing that the 1,000 people told me was incorrect. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they were very correct and more because mm -hmm. when you start residency, you realize, holy smokes, this, this is not, you know, this is intense. But now, uh, in retrospect, I wonder whether they tried to turn uh, many men away from the specialty as well. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I, I wasn't in those <laughs> shoes to say. Yeah. Uh, so there are many, many factors, right? And... Um, there are factors that are individual, there are factors that are societal, uh, how we project as a specialty, how we project ourselves in medical schools and whether we, uh, you know, project ourselves as a field that only very few can come to and mm -hmm. so on and uh, a bit of a, uh, you know, very special attitude or whether we project it as this, you know, amazing opportunity that, that you have of uh, integrating uh, science and uh, surgical skills uh, to really drive our understanding in, in this area. So, yeah, it's... Uh, um, I think at the end we'll have to take a multifaceted approach to uh, to allow for, uh, for change. Mm -hmm. 
uh, within this, uh, uh, you know, 11% that you mentioned, um, or altogether within neurosurgery, to have a career that involves uh, surgical uh, treatment of these conditions as well as science is uh, even a smaller number. Mm -hmm. um, but I think beyond that, at some point in, in, uh, in time, then, you know, perhaps numbers only mean so much. And yeah. uh, again, you have to have enough persistence to just push through and open the doors for, for those coming uh, after you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let me ask you another then difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned the, you know, two people who supported you and who really pushed you to do this and the thousand others who, you know, maybe told you to reconsider. But if, um, if a young woman, let's say, walked into your office and, you know, said that they, you know, you're a role model for them and you had to give some advice for them, would you be part of that 1,000? Would you be part of those two? And what advice, what advice would, you, would you give that person? Well, I think whatever words come out of my mouth, uh, they need to be perceived in context of the person that's listening to them. The same way that I listened to those 1,000 and mm -hmm. I chose to ignore it. I think I would try to project a balanced view and, and really do explain the details of, of a life in neurosurgery. Uh, but I, I hope that no one gets dissuaded by the intensity of the specialty. We're not the only intense type of work in society. Mm -hmm. um, there is many other aspects of either medicine or other specialties that are very, very intense. And I don't think we should shy away from anything. Mm -hmm. If you want to do it, if you think that you're qualified for it, and if you want to dedicate yourself, not to a job, but to a career, then do what, what you think is the right thing to do for you. Right. Wonderful. Let's segue to, you know, speaking of giving advice, and let's segue sort of towards, towards mentorship and teaching. Um, what... What sparked your actually first let me recap sort of your involvement maybe you can fill in some of the some of the holes uh, as far as I'm aware you're still uh, giving a course advanced neuroanatomy in the Institute of Medical Sciences at the University of Toronto um, do you do any teaching locally besides that yeah so I've taught that course advanced neuroanatomy of which uh, you were one of the star students Luca <laughs> since I believe if I go back 2009 okay. there's been, there's a pause now for 2021 mm -hmm. uh, given you know pandemic and so on mm -hmm. so yeah that's been one area of uh, involvement uh, obviously uh, my graduate students and so on um, have been a huge source of my educational involvement and I'm extremely proud of them and uh, I'm currently the site director for our neurosurgery residency program at the Western and on the uh, education leadership uh, co uh, committee. Looks like we work in a hospital, huh? <laughs> Sounds like it, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I have a number of educational um, hats, I suppose, which uh, um, are involved and are absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also, besides sort of the local involvement you have at the University of Toronto and here at the, uh, the hospital, um, I was reading a little bit about um, the Neuron Project. So you're, you're, you're the founder of the Neuron Project, which stands for the Neurosurgical Education with Universal Reach. 
Um, can you tell me more about this program? Sort of what 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 is your involvement in it? What is it? How do people gain access to it? Yeah, so I developed this in the context of my um, other passion, which is uh, global neurosurgery, mm -hmm. and the fact that if we look at the world as one entity, uh, which I truly believe that it is, and it is one of my own core beliefs, um, uh, then why is it that in some places, such as here, we are so comfortable with the health uh, care that we have, and in some places, it is such a struggle. Mm -hmm. And if we think about it in those terms, in fact, we see that uh, the burden of neurosurgical um, cases in places such as you know, low-income countries is huge when you look at trauma. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, sheer density of cars in the population, the poor... Uh, at times poor uh, social infrastructure uh, that results in motor vehicle accidents and so on, all of them really uh, hit the young in society. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, uh, the programs need to be obviously very, very strong to deal with that, and oftentimes they're not. So um, in, uh, uh, as part of the opportunity that, uh, that I've had to travel in, uh, uh, to different programs and different um, hospitals and so on, I developed this uh, entity called the Neuron Project, which effectively uh, tries to uh, provide a um, structured online curriculum, didactic curriculum for surgical training. So typically we think of surgery as being one that involves, you know, excellent surgical skills, technical skills. What uh, typically others are not aware of so much the, that are not surgeons is that a ton goes into surgical decision-making. Mm -hmm. And of course, the knowledge base that you need to have to be a good surgeon. So uh, it's that aspect, the surgical decision-making and all the knowledge required, anatomy, surgical anatomy, uh, neuroradiology, neuropathology, and so on, that really needs intensifying and fortifying for many of these low-income countries because they just don't have the right setup. They're excellent surgeons, uh, they learn to operate really well under their own circumstances, but that part, if it becomes intensified and structured, then their learning will become so much more effective. And, uh, you know, it's a way of effectively strengthening their programs without them, ha them having to leave the country. Mm -hmm. So this uh, program has been uh, tried and deployed in different places, including Cambodia, uh, including Vietnam, um, uh, there were a number of courses that I had initially in Africa, mm -hmm. in Ghana. And uh, um, through uh, a series of circumstances the past year, it sort of, it's flattened a little bit, but it will uh, resurface very strongly in uh, the year to come. And uh, there have been, of course, key partners to this. Uh, surgeons worldwide that are interested in global neurosurgery that uh, I've worked with them. Um, in the U.S., in Japan, in different places. And, uh, uh, yeah, we form an amazing uh, crew that uh, really is uh, interested in driving and strengthening um, uh, residency programs uh, throughout the world. That's, that's exciting. Um, perhaps this is a good plug for the program then, and if there are any interested listeners, for maybe sure. they should they should contact you about uh, such an opportunity. Um so the last thing I want to I want to chat about I've I've attended uh, several sort of World Surgery Functional Neurosurgical conferences over the years, 
Uh, I know that you're always very involved. You're on the board. I think you're the uh, treasurer or... Yes, I was a treasurer, not okay. the vice secretary. Okay, perfect. So what what um, can you sort of define a role for these organized societies for the advancement of, of neuromodulation, DBS, stereotactic functional neurosurgery? Um, do you feel that this is sort of something sort of that's very important to contributing to the field? And, and how, how does yeah, it Yeah, I, I think so. Look, I think it's actually very, very valuable to have a form of conversation mm-hmm. uh, and a form of glo- for global conversation. It's, um, uh, it's a fantastic opportunity. First of all, it's a very historical society mm-hmm. uh, as it developed uh, initially for a society for the study of, uh, of um, encephalography. And then it became the World Society for Stereotactic and Functional Neurosurgery. So it goes back to the times of uh, Spiegel and Weisses that effectively mm-hmm. uh, started the field uh, for us. But really, any um, opportunity that we have at a conversation, whether it's a face-to-face meeting at a conference, whether it's a webinar, whether it's a symposium online, uh, you know, it allows different uh, thoughts and different uh, styles uh, of uh, surgical approach to come together. And it all eventually distills into what we decide to do in, uh, in terms of uh, surgical approach and uh, um, understanding of where the research is going. An incredible opportunity for young surgeons, uh, residents, fellows, researchers to come and meet others and form um, partnerships, uh, cooperations. So um, I think these these societies have a very, very unique role and value. I've had uh, the uh, great fortune of uh, uh, chairing the scientific program for two of our meetings, and uh, it's been absolutely fantastic. And, you know, then you also get to have friends all around the world, which is awesome. Yeah, of course. Um, All right, Dr. Lai, that was... Excellent opportunity to chat with you, learn a little bit more about yourself, your career. Um, to appease Andy Horn, I'll, I'll leave you with one final question, which is, what is your favorite brain region and why? Uh, my very favorite brain region is the insula. The insula. Okay. The insula is a very small and, as you know, hidden under the opercula of the brain but boy for a small region it sure does quite a lot Mm -hmm. and it's such a fascinating uh, structure that uh, you know you read papers about all kinds of stuff and the insula keeps popping in again and again so it uh, it has consumed my curiosity for a very (laughs) long time and uh, I must say I have been very interested. I've talked to a number of people about the opportunity of stimulating the insula for mm-hmm. certain, certain conditions. It's a difficult, difficult region to get to. And, um, you know, parking an electrode uh, there has its own challenges as well. But, uh, yeah, I didn't have to think about that too hard. Okay. Wonderful. It's an intriguing option for sure. Um, well, Thank you again for your time. Um, I think I have to run down to the OR, and I'm sure your, your schedule is keeping you busy as well, but it was a pleasure speaking with you, and I look forward to seeing the OR in the next few days probably. Thank you, Luca. Thanks for the opportunity, and it was a wonderful conversation.